You're listening to the Habit Podcast. Um, I'm really excited to chat with you today. For me, you have been like this staple in the Victoria triathlon scene for as long as I can remember. Um, and when we when I dug a little bit more into your story and your background, I was actually quite floored because your history here and in the in the world of triathlon and certainly in the world of other things uh, stretches way back. I was quite surprised. And I, there were a few things I wanted to dig in uh, on this podcast. And when you sent me the notes, I, I was actually, I was laughing, but also like, oh my gosh, this guy has had quite the life. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. Um, so thanks for coming on on the show. Well, my pleasure. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, so let's start kind of back at the beginning. I, I, one of the things that struck me was that your involvement in the sport of triathlon goes right back to almost the beginning, and that's the early 80s. Uh, yeah. why, why don't we start there? Um, yeah, well, I was here in Victoria. I was going to the university there, and I had a friend in uh, Vancouver, a guy from high school, who had reached out to me, and he wanted me to be his handler. Now, back in the day, you you did the triathlon and you had somebody who kind of waited for you at the shore, took you to your bike, maybe gave you some fruit or something and send you on your way and then was waiting for you to wave you in, show you where your shoes were and stuff like that. And there was like 750 people in the race. This fellow was Rob. And he told me all about this and you swim a mile and you bike for, I think the bike was like 42K. It was, you know, contingent on the on the terrain and a 10k run so he had uh, the the organizers were really close to that original olympic distance when there was no olympic distance there was just a couple of races around the globe so i think i think rob reached out to me in 83 and he wanted to do the 84 race and i said well hell no i don't want to be a handler that sounds like fun yeah you know (laughs) i was last picked for dodgeball all the time but i always loved sports so I, i thought i can swim i can bike and i can run i'll give it a try and uh, I think I came like out of the 750 people, I was, I think there was like 40 people behind me when I finished. Yeah. I was almost three hours and, you know, I turned out I couldn't swim, bike or run. Yeah. But it sure was fun. And, and the hooks were in right from that day. Yeah. And yeah. was that the, the Sri? It was the Sri Chimoy, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, tell people about that race because that's Well, it started in 79 and it started, it's really unique. I'd love to know... What was in his mind? There was a guy, Sarichin Moy, who has since transitioned. Okay. Um, but he had this idea that you could reach spirituality through endurance sport, and so he started forming these marathons and this triathlon. Where he got the idea, I don't know, because his first triathlon was like months after, like the twelve or fifteen guys went in Kona. It wasn't Kona at the time. Right. The Hawaii, John Collins and all that. They had, but that nobody, like, I mean, that didn't get any press. It didn't really get any press until Julie Moss crossed. So I don't know how, where he got the original idea and how he, like, came so close to the bullseye. But I think, you know, they there, he had a, a group here, a prayer group or mm-hmm. whatever they call it. I apologize if I'm getting it wrong. I'm sure I am. But they, he had a group here in Victoria, so he had them, he commissioned them to put this race on. And I th- I think um, the distances just lent themselves because of the geography of, of Elk Lake, which is where... And there's been a race there every uh, August 1st, 
long weekend in August since 79. Mm-hmm. I, my understanding is it was the longest or the second longest Well, it was third, third, like Kona again, Hawaii was a couple of months before. So Hawaii first went like in February, March or something, then they shifted it, right? Mm-hmm. So they first went, Collins and his group did it like in February, March of 79. Sri did his here, the August long weekend. Yeah. In 79. Okay. And apparently there was one before that that was in Japan of all places. Really? Like, like the, so the, the original triathlon ever was Japan or was there something before that? There well, was what was before that. that was in San Diego. Right, it was Tinley right. and Allen and all those guys yeah. doing these really impromptu things. Yeah. Where they're like, let's meet Wednesday and we'll swim to that island and get on our bikes and bike here. And so they weren't as formalized, but they had this really rich triathlon community that was growing in, in San Diego. Wow. Yeah. And, um, oh, that guy who owned the pub down there, I can't think of his name now. I can't remember hardly anything anymore. I'm so old, but that Tom Warren. Okay. Uh, he, he was organizing things out of his, he had the pub on the beach and, yeah. And doing things. And I think he like second or third in, in Hawaii one year, or maybe really? even won it. I, I can't, yeah. you know, there's been, a lot of history there that uh, I'm not a archivist. I don't remember all these things. Yeah. You know, I get the spirit of it right, but not the dates. And yeah, the that's, dates you know what? That's the most important yeah. thing. <laughs> Who cares about the yeah. dates? <laughs> they all kind of blend in. Huh? Yeah. All of those guys were, were down there and doing, doing great things. And then it, it, you know, after Moss crawled across the finish line, it was just on fire. Yeah. What year was that? 83. And yeah. Yeah. And so for those yeah. of those people listening that may not know, Tell us about what that that historic. Well, she was a university student, who I think, like a lot of people at the time, sort of. The Sports Illustrated had written a story, very little, like a couple inches in one of its columns about the Hawaii Ironman, Mm -hmm. and at the time there was like eighty people in it, ninety people, something like that. She read the story, thought, "I'd like to do that." Did a little bit of training, entered the race, um, and was winning. Now. There might have been a dozen women in the in the race at the time. Again, I don't know. It wasn't that many, mm-hmm. and there certainly wasn't a pro field. Yeah. Right. Dave Scott by then was was racing and had embraced the sport and was trying to figure out a system of training. So he was knocking hours off of his race. Julie gets out there races, and I mean, essentially, she was she she bonked. She was on. She didn't have the nutrition she needed to carry her to the finish line, and with like couple hundred meters to go everything gave out and it and it was in the dark and she's stumbling along the road to the finish line literally stumbling falling down getting up people are helping her they're cheering you know she's got this little baseball cap on askew shit's rolling down her legs and it's all on uh i guess it was abc at the time and within meters of the finish line kathleen McCartney was she called Kathleen Mick something yeah ran by her and had no idea that she ran by ran into first she just you can see her just sort of trying to get by the crowd because Julie was so surrounded she's crawling and so surrounded by so many people that Kathleen didn't even see her Mm -hmm. ran and they say oh you won yeah and a few seconds later then Julie got there and probably the one of the most uh notorious second places in history yeah no really like she 
to this day has a life in triathlon because of that moment. Yeah, yeah, and she is. She's an icon. She I, is an yeah. icon. Yeah. And because of that, that moment really put I think triathlon on the map. Absolutely. It, on yeah. Globally. Yeah. Because, well, people still talk about it. It came up mm-hmm. in my spin on Saturday. Somebody talked about how they saw that and yeah. that was what they... Yeah. yeah. You see it now 25, 30 years later and it still moves you. It's yeah. a moving moment. Yeah. yeah, it is. I've seen... Yeah, because the footage is still available. I'm sure you can... I'm sure it's been uploaded onto YouTube or somewhere. Anyway, every once it's in a while... It's on YouTube. You yeah. can find it on YouTube. Yeah, every, a couple of different... Yeah. Every once in a while, that footage pops up and it's just... Yeah. It's remarkable. You're like, wow. Um, anyway, so you do your first triathlon in 83, 84. Yep. Kind of not... Right around the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, I hadn't seen the Julie Moss at that point. Yeah. I would see it a, like a year. Back then, you you know, there was no internet. Right. You, there was Triathlete Magazine... There was two different triathlon magazines that came out probably, I don't know when they came out, but there was Triathlete Magazine at that time, and we, and we all ordered it and couldn't wait to get it, and that's when you would read about stuff, and the ABC coverage would come months after the race, yeah. months, and there would be nothing in the newspaper, so like it's interesting, like it was really difficult to know what was going on, and uh, so I think I saw it... To this day, they show that in every coverage, right? Mm-hmm. They show that clip. And I saw it as a clip in a probably an 84 or an 85 coverage. Yeah. yeah. What, I, what I find remarkable about that moment and so many moments in our sport is it's actually quite horrific. Meaning you're seeing somebody who is literally on the verge of like physical and mental collapse. Absolutely. Like, and and yeah. yet, yet that is the ignition switch for thousands of people to well, get of into course. it. Of so what's, it what's the deal with that? Well, That's because so weird. She was just, I find that weird. When she was interviewed, she was pretty and she was articulate <clears throat> and she was not this great athlete. She was you and me. Mm-hmm. And, and she managed to take herself right to the brink and finish. So we see that and we think, I could do that. Again, as I said early, last pick for dodgeball, but I could do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to try that because I may not be fast, but I'm tough. We all think we're tough. Everybody thinks they're tough. So they're going to try it. That's why, what is it, 200 people die every year on Everest because we're not as tough as we think. Right. (laughs) And then you go out there and you do an Ironman and you know you've done a couple. It really is tough. Yes. Like there's no, nobody ever finishes an Ironman and says, boy, that was the easiest thing I ever did. Nobody says it. Unless they win, then sometimes it sort of feels that way because yeah. winning sort of gives you energy. But it's tough. And and the, the satisfaction of achieving something like that, it's still all these years later, other things come and go, these Spartan races and all of these endurance, three-day endurance events come and go. But like the marathon, I think it's starting to solidify into something that's certainly not a fad anymore. Yeah, no, I to think test it's, yourself. Yeah. It's pretty solid. I mean, when when Iron Man Corporation sells for almost a billion dollars yeah, to a yeah. a big conglomerate, you know that it's the real deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So and they is, still fill, right? Yeah. The Iron yes. Man still fill very quickly. Yes, yeah. and not only that, I mean. Back then, there was a couple Ironmans, yeah. and now there's... I can't even count. Oh, I mean, there's, it's, I, I don't know, there's over 30 for sure yeah. that are Ironman brand, and then there's a non-Ironman brand that are the Iron Distance that you right. can go and do. Yeah. yeah. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by Group 11, websites for athletes. 
your super simple couple of clicks drag and drop stylishly bold single page website. Many athletes are wasting time and money on high powered systems like Squarespace, Wix, WordPress and others which all require technical know-how and solid design chops to create a page that looks great and communicates well. Group 11 makes it quick and easy to update with desktop and mobile editing. And the focused customization options keep your attention on what matters most, the content. To learn more, check out group11.co. That's group11.co. So just fast forwarding a little bit. So you, you get the hook in the 83, yeah. 84 uh, you're back, you're in Victoria. Uh, and then you, you're also in school. Yeah, I was in university and I was walking around one day and on a, on a telephone pole was a paper staple to come join the new UVic triathlon club. Cool. It's like, Hey, I do that. And it was the Kelly brothers, Wayne and Pat Kelly. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. And so they formed certainly the first triathlon club in Canada had to be. Yeah. And, um, and there was going to be a meeting to see if there was an interest. You know, the club hadn't formed. Mm-hmm. They were calling a meeting to see if it, if there was interest. And I went to that meeting and there was quite a few people in the room. I, there had to be maybe 30, something like that. And so they formed a triathlon club, which was essentially a swim group. Mm-hmm. Be, you know, and that's the foundation to this day. The foundation of a triathlon club is a swim group. Right. You don't have a swim if swim's not part of your triathlon club, you've got a bike run club. That, that's how I still feel. Yeah. Swimming has to be a part of that club. And Pat and Wayne were from a family of Olympic swimmers. John Kelly went to the Olympics. Wayne Kelly went to the Olympics. Pat didn't go to the Olympics because of the boycott in 1980. Otherwise, ah. he would have been there as well. Is that right? Yeah. So, so they, he was that high oh, level he's of a swimmer. A beaut- he, of the three of them, yeah. if you ever see Pat swim, yeah. he was the pretty swimmer. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was, and he, um, of the two brothers, he was the quiet one. And, and Wayne was gregarious and out there, and Pat was always sort of quiet in the background. It took me quite a bit longer to get to know him, but we ended up becoming very good friends and still are to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's had some battles. There's a guy you want to talk to. Yeah, he would. He's he old. Would, yeah. he, but he's so quiet. I don't know if he would say anything. Yeah, Probably a like, lot of yes well, and no's, right? But, uh, yeah, I'd have to. Maybe when I'm more experienced yeah. at the podcast thing and I can fill the gaps. Yeah, you know? fill, yeah. yeah. cancer survivor. <laughs> just an amazing guy. And he's over. He's coaching in Japan. Uh, we yeah. had a, a beer here a couple of weeks ago when he was in town. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I ended up uh, getting involved in that and... Fairly, you know, fairly committed. I started to train hard mm-hmm. uh, for what I thought was hard, you know, nine, ten hours a week or something at that time. Yeah. You're going to school and you, you know, you're in one relationship or another and you, but it was fun. We obsessed and, and I, I, I feel sorry for some of the newer athletes. It's such a different thing now. Like there was just no information and that lack of information made it exciting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Boone Scott came out with the arrow bars and I managed to get like three of them sent to me here directly yeah. from him Yeah, yeah. back in the day. And people were fighting to get them from me. And I remember the first time I put them on the bike because till then we just had bikes. Right. Right. Just, right. But putting them on like this was uh, this was the bomb. I went out to Ring Road 
you know, dropped into the arrow position, went like 10 feet and came right back up <laughs> yeah. and thought, I am not doing that. Yeah. Holy God, it was scary. Yeah. But of course, you know, you get used to it. I still have those bars hanging out in my shed. Cool. Those yeah. would be collector's items. Oh, they are. I, yeah. I, now, you'll know Andrew McNaughton. Sure. I, yeah, I, I remember I, Andrew. He was an East Coast boy, but he, yep. yeah, yeah. So I worked with him. He coached me for a number of years, and he's credited it as one of, if not the first guys to actually use arrow bars back in the day. Oh, is that right? Yep. Yeah. And he tells stories of prior to that, them cutting toilet toilet seat things in half sure and okay. like taping yeah. them to the front of their bike I, no, I might have just made that up i'm not uh, <laughs> but that's knows? a great story I, I i mean my first memory of seeing them was on greg lamont okay right so yeah. he had the clip on yes in the tour and he was eight minutes tour. down from finion and and caught him in the time trial which that's was right. unheard of because it wasn't a long time trial it was like i don't know yeah it wasn't that long yeah hour or two hours of a time trial which for a cyclist isn't you don't make eight minutes up when you're two of the best in the world. Right, right. But he did and, and was credited with those bars, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're you're in school, you're joining the UVic yeah. Tri Club, but what I'm actually more interested in is you did a degree in psychology. I did, yeah, right? at the time, yeah. Yeah. And and I was, yeah, I was working pretty hard at that. Um, and one of the teachers, Dr. Payne, Dr. Robert Payne, just an amazing man who had helped found the psych department at Queens, took an interest in me because of the my interest, which was abnormal psychology, criminal behavior, things like that, personality testing. And he took me on in a in a fifth year independent study. So essentially my fifth year was just him. And it was it so it was like going for a master's in a way. Um and I spent a week over at a place called Riverside, I think it was called. It was an insane asylum over and on the mainland since closed down now. And you drive up to it, it's like pulling up to the pen, you know. Yeah. Looks like something out of a Batman comic. And uh, I walked in there and I spent a week, not there, but like at a motel nearby. And every morning I'd go over and and uh, and that cleaned me of any desire to work in the health system. It was madness. It was, was it? I mean, yeah. there was three doctors worth 1,400 patients. Whoa. I'm not kidding. There just was no money. Right. So all the, there was lots of nurses, like, but you walked in and people would come up. It was like out of a movie, come and tug on your clothes, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Are you here to help us? Wow. Fuck no. Yeah. I'm out of here, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I went up to the lockdown ward and, and it was like after that, I just thought, no, I probably don't have the temperament for this. I, I, I take on everything you know like i got 14 reasonable athletes that i work with and i take their shit on right. i couldn't take 1400 seriously mental people yeah yeah and i mean the sad thing is all those people are out on the street now are dead you know right. they're just they've right. made so many cuts yeah in our healthcare system that was and seeing that and talking to the people that work there just said this is not the industry to get in it's just getting worse and worse and they were right 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 you know yeah so yeah. i did that and uh and I didn't want to work in that field. I was bouncing. I was a bouncer. I got myself through college uh, bouncing at night. That was one job I applied for many times. Yeah, I'm sure. Didn't quite make <laughs> didn't the grade. Make well, you know, I was running when I applied. I weighed a buck fifty. <laughs> you know, but uh, but after a while, I yeah, I took to that job. Uh, 
I could talk, you know, talk to people. I had all the meatheads working there and then me. Yeah. And yeah. I would be the guy to go, hey, everybody calm down. Now, can't we all just get along? And yeah. That worked most of the time. Yeah. Did your, now, did your uh, experience getting a degree in psychology, did, or, or, I mean, maybe that's taking the, yeah, the, the well, bouncer the psychology, role too the, far. The, 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 the psychology I studied, remember, was extreme abnormal behavior. Right. Like, right. so that wasn't really, you know, but of course some things apply. What I learned, I, you could learn over a weekend course that helped with the bouncing was just listen to people, even mm-hmm. drunks. If you can look them in the eye and say, what's your problem? Seriously, what, what is it that's got you upset here? Let's see if we can work it out. Most of the time, yeah, they will listen and they'll stop whatever it is destructive that they're doing. I, I found that time and time again. Yeah. In the yeah. 12 years that I was there, I don't think I ever had to strike somebody in anger. Yeah. I struck lots of people, but it wasn't in anger. I was like, <laughs> I was, I'm not sure know. what to make of that. Well, you're defending yourself, <laughs> right, right? Right, I see, you know? I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, I calmly and coolly beat the <laughs> piss out of people without losing my shit yeah so that was you know and i liked doing that i liked working with people and and the pay was really good you you know i was making good money there and and so i started doing that full time but that lifestyle starts to get at you you know and i i was um so i'd get up in the morning i was always a writer and i would do some writing and and you know maybe i'd get up at 11 Mm -hmm. go to work around six or seven at night come home at three in the morning and always three or four beers under your belt yeah. every night at the end of the night we would just sit and drink everybody who worked there mm-hmm. and it was fun and it was exciting and there was all these young good-looking people and but after a while I started to think man I am really drinking too much yeah I yeah. need to get out of this and I took a degree I got a diploma in computer science after that I thought it'd be a little more applicable so I swung the complete other way mm-hmm. and um got involved in the politics of triathlon which was a bad thing to do yeah and so you through this whole time are you still doing triathlon? yeah i did around 87 88 i met a girl yeah who was a runner yeah and i started focusing on my run a little bit more which gave me more time eventually and and then as i mentioned there i was in politics for a while and that really turned me off that was a, like i just had some very bad experiences so what years what years were, were oh, probably that? 87 so the politics of, of triathlon yeah les like... mcdonald had formed uh you know he was going around trying to form federations everywhere mm-hmm. he wanted this sport in the olympics that's what he wanted and he was going to get it right and in order to do that you need a certain number of governing bodies for a certain number of countries i don't know how many it is five ten fifth whatever and Canada was going to be his first one. Mm-hmm. So he formed a Canadian triathlon association. And in order for it to be legitimate, there had to be 10 provincial ones. Right. So he went across the country and formed all these. Uh, never like He would sit as a director, but he would never want to be the president himself. He had much bigger uh, goals. I ended up, by default, being the president of the British Columbia Triathlon Association. I think it was the second or third one after the first guy realized what a shit show it was and he bailed mm-hmm. i had been the vice president and then i just found myself in that position but i was young and i wasn't you know i just didn't the courage of my convictions i was there to i was actually there just to promote an uh, elite the elite triathletes i thought there we needed some sort of way to support these young men and women who were really trying to be good mm-hmm. and there wasn't really anywhere to go though there was no olympics and less liked that 
but in the end, you know, I just got to see a side of humanity that was really unattractive. Yeah. Um, so I got out of that and, and then was a little bit, I went through a phase where I just was done with triathlon. Like I say, I met this girl, started running in the local running community and, uh, you know, was able to keep getting faster and that felt good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just running local 10Ks. Yeah. And taking my degree in computer science, ended up working with the government designing database programs and that was horrifying just the worst job oh for me in a little cubicle yeah yeah i was suicidal Mm -hmm. and i somewhere in there got married right so and then just everything you know i just i I got so into some pretty deep depression Mm -hmm. and so i quit fired from that job i wasn't gonna last there my marriage ended after a year and I decided to get out of town and, yeah. and move down. But to LA. Pri- prior to that, let's—I I really want to yeah, dive you, into the, the LA you, stuff. Yeah. But the, you, you said you started a tri shop. The first, oh yeah, the I did the tri shop. Then few people have laughs about that. Yeah, I—I <laughs> I was not a businessman, but I was so frustrated with the inability to get anything. Right, like we just couldn't get anything. Yeah, and I was dating this woman who had a nephew who had a soccer shop, and they weren't—they were struggling. Right. To make this soccer shop work. And she said, you should go talk to them. You could rent half their space, do a triathlon shop. They need the money and, and it would be really cheap. And it was cheap. And I, you know, took a bunch of my dad's money, bought all of this product, got it, you know, I contact directly the companies that were creating these, the product that we were reading about in the magazines, but couldn't buy locally. Mm-hmm. And so I'd bring the stuff up and I just got robbed blind. I just got robbed blind. Every, the shoplifting is actually what people would come in and just steal stuff. My friends would steal stuff. It was it was horrifying. Yeah, In the end, it was the shoplifting more than anything that like I would lose just so much every day. I, I yeah. wow. I, yeah. I would never have expected you no. to say that. Yeah. And people would take stuff and I'll pay you later and not. It was Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah, like, I just, so what, I just what kind of, of what kind of products are you stocking back then? What what existed? The best swim goggles for open water, for instance, I remember they yeah. were called Barracudas. You couldn't buy them. Everybody was using them. And certain like tri shorts. You couldn't even buy a tri short. So right. think of that, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually I brought in a couple of different brands of running shoes yeah. that were sort of tri specific. The bars, I brought the bars in. Yeah. I never got to stock them because people wanted them so badly that they, they just were gone and, and then you couldn't get them for a long time. Yeah. And then of course you could get all you wanted. Um yeah, so and then there, I'd had some nutritional product in there that And what was that? Just power bar? Power was bar was the first thing, the... yeah. Yeah. That was the first thing. They were you can't even buy that kind of power bar anymore. I still remember it was like toffee almost yes, in a way. You I know? remember. We, I liked it. I always yeah. enjoyed those. They had a little crunch to them. Yeah. But it's long. That that product's long gone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was. Yeah. There was. I I brought in. I think it was called Aid, which got bought out then by Gatorade because there was oh. no Gatorade, but there was Aid or something like that. You know, for marathon. Ah. That okay. the guys yeah. had invent. Like the guy had created it in his basement by analyzing sweat and he thought if you create a drink that's essentially sweat yeah drink it in that's got to work yeah it's awful yeah but yeah we bought that in and yeah nobody paid for it they just took it 
So that's, yeah, yeah. So I had the tri den. I still got a shirt or two out there. I sponsored some athletes and stuff. And yeah, but it was, uh, it was a fool's errand that was. Yeah. 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 But you know, I think, uh, first businesses for people are usually a fool's errand. Yeah. yeah. Well, I learned. I have about 10. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I learned a ton. I like, you know, I run my business now, my triathlon club much better because of, of, of that. Right. I don't let people not pay. I mean, you know, I'm not a Nazi about it, but yeah. I, you know, you pay your bills now. I don't let yeah. people get away with that. And that, I mean, that's changed my life in a way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but it, I mean, it was, that was tough. Those were actually, I can't really say that I look back with it with fondness. Like mm-hmm. what I remember is laying in bed at night with anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And just guilt over having lost all this money that my dad had worked so hard for. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so that was, uh, that weighed on me. Yeah. Do definitely. you think that, so you, you mentioned that you kind of slid into a bit of a darker place. Oh, I was, yeah. Was that, that was, I that mean, I'm in and out of dark places. Yeah. That's my life, right? That's who I am. Mm-hmm. And I've had to come to, to grips with that. And I do a little better with it now in my advancing age. My daughter has helped out with that because you're not, you, you just don't have the luxury of wallowing in despair right you know but anxiety has been a part of my life always a low level or high level but never no level Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was but uh and then you know and that's when I decided I really somewhere in there the shop had failed my marriage had failed the jobs had failed I was working as a bouncer making pretty good money and so I had some financial stability a little bit for a young guy. I was single and I thought I just want to go somewhere warm. Mm-hmm. I just want to go somewhere where it's warm for like six months. I had saved up like, I don't know, $8,000 or something like that. And I thought I could live for six months. Yeah. So I had, I was thinking Florida, Mexico or LA. Those were the three places I thought I would go. I thought, Mexico, no, I can't speak the language. Florida is a long ways away. Uh, but it's cheap mm-hmm. and LA is close. It's a little bit more expensive, but they were making movies there. And the thread in my life was movies always. Yeah. Like yeah. I love triathlon, but movies, since I was a kid, my mom would give me 50 cents in Dawson Creek and I'd go to the Crest theater and watch Tarzan movies and stuff like that. And that yeah. was like, you know, and that was at the age of five and six, just going by myself up to the theater. Wow. Can you yeah. imagine we would never let our <laughs> no. kids do that now, but back then, yeah, there. I just don't remember people watching over us. Like we just, and it was a good life. Yeah, yeah, good life. And I would movies were always the thing for me. My parents, we didn't have a lot of money, so if my parents wanted to go to a movie, they would go to a drive-in and take me with them. Right. So I was like seeing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Clute and these really adult movies, Papillon, when I was really young, mm-hmm. and I loved them. Yeah. I didn't always understand what was going on, yeah. but I knew that it was special, yeah. and uh, yeah, and it, that's dr- what I wanted to do. You, you bring up drive-ins. Yeah. Again, I don't know if everybody listening will know what that even is, but a drive oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, like they, where you actually drive your car. Well, you and, drove and up to a little them. pole, and you pulled the speaker inside your car, and, yeah, and yeah. there'd be like two or three films playing. There would be a, yes. uh, everything was a double feature, yeah. and some shorts and news and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when I first started uh, um, dating uh, my now wife, Judith, um, We there was a drive-in in Guelph, Ontario, and I had a Volkswagen van, 
And that's what we would do for date night. We'd park <laughs> it right at the back and we'd pop the top up. Yeah. And uh, we'd, we'd have pizza and we'd watch a movie from the, from the oh, van. Nice. But I don't think there's, there can't be many drive-ins. No, there's, not, now. there's a few. There's, um, they now have these um, ones that can move around, you know, mobile ones. Ah, and they okay. inflate it. So they'll go to somewhere like a parking lot in a mall. Yeah. And, the, you know, they'll advertise locally. You can go see something like Jaws or yeah. Apocalypse. And now they tune it into a radio station, yeah, don't they? Because yeah. it used to be these old things yeah. that clip to your window. Sure, yeah. If you got Watch. one of those, it's yeah. collector's yeah. item. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that was fun. So I, I just thought, I'll go to L.A. because they're making movies there. And it might be fun. Maybe I'll get to see somebody make a movie. Yeah. That's what I thought would yeah. be. So you went down there with the intent of kind of being somewhere warm, but also maybe exploring the... I just the movie world a I, little bit. I never really had the confidence that that I could actually make a living in the. I was writing screenplays. I had been for years. Right, right. But it like I'd never given anyone to read one or anything. It was just something I did because mm-hmm. I had. So all you these would hours. make like your original idea, yeah. and write it and a screenplay. Yeah. Not. I mean, I'm totally ignorant. It's basically the, What's the movie written yeah. out. Yeah. So it's like well, it's who's saying happening. what? And yeah, yeah, exactly. So you had a bunch of those. Like a, I like, had four written when yeah. I went down. I remember them well. Yeah. Um, In what genre? We. Yeah, mostly horror. Yeah. But at that yeah. time, I think one was a romantic comedy. One was an action adventure. One was straight up horror. Yeah. And then one was kind of a was meant to be a comedy, but by the time I finished it, it had become this sort of dark drama yeah. thing. And uh, I, I hadn't pigeonholed myself into horror at that time, but eventually I would. Now, do you think your uh, time spent in that type of psychology in a way? Like, is it, did that lead no, to it? it or what? time just spent your, in movie theaters. So you just, yeah. your, your fascination with yeah. that kind I of stuff. I just love stories. My grandfather was a storyteller. He was one of those guys that, you know, he'd push his chair back and, yeah, I remember it would start and everybody would just stop talking because wow. he knew, you know, this great story would come out. As he got older, sometimes they repeated, but that was fine with us. No one ever said anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I just you... wanted to tell stories. I just thought it'd be really fun to tell stories. Yeah. But I didn't go, I did not have the confidence to think, you know, I, I grew up believing that, you know, a, a, an industry like Hollywood is going to be who you know. You got to be born into it. You got to have the right friends and family and stuff. And a guy just coming into town is going to end up a drug addict on the streets. I mean, I was convinced that's how it was going to go. Mm-hmm. My idea really was just maybe I could get on a set. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could meet somebody and get on a set and watch a movie being made. And did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you, because yeah. you ended up, so you say when you're planning to go for six months, what yeah. actually ended up? Well, happening? I ended up staying six years. Wow. I, I had a job within a couple of days delivering scripts for this production. I met a guy like in a bar or something. And he's like, we need a, someone to deliver scripts for us. Paid seven fifty an hour. And I was driving this Lexus, not a Lexus, a Acura Legend with a six cylinder. It didn't even cover my gas. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, well, that'd be fun. Drive around and deliver scripts to different actors, producers. It was this little production house that were, they were pushing this movie that they had acquired, this, a script from somebody. And it was my job. They would print off all of these scripts and I'd have a whole box and each one would have an address. And I would just drive around and deliver them to people. And it was really fun. And the first thing the guy said to me, if anyone invites you into their house to talk to them or something, and I'm expecting like you just keep going because I'm paying you. said, you go in there and you drink until you're stupid if you have to, but you make a connection <laughs> wow. with these people. And sometimes they did, you know, and it was yeah. interesting. Yeah. 
So these were actors and actors whoever they needed for it. Well, film. they would yeah. listen. This guy was throwing mud against the wall, so it was anybody and everybody. So he was he a screenwriter? Or no, a, he part had of a he had acquired. That... It was a, it was a guy, and he had a couple people working for him. He had like a staff of two, a woman and a guy who I'm still friends with. The guy Jim Townsend, he's called really wonderful guy, um, and they were working full time out of this office trying to push this movie you know honestly i can't even remember what it was called at this time yeah but it was a script that i was driving around now did you ever show them your scripts or were you too shy uh, i didn't show mine for a long time eventually eventually i um i started working the timeline's a little disjointed but i met this woman on the internet at the time it was very the internet was very different this was in the 90s and there was what they called news groups. Mm-hmm. And it was like a big forum, really, like, you know, like Slow Twitch or something like that, big forum. There'd be a subject and then people could comment on it. That's how you met people on the internet. People were hardly even using email at that time yet. And I met this woman called Judith Rasco, who answered a question that I had posted about screenwriting. This was even prior to going to LA. And so she answered the question and I remember thinking, She's answering it in such a way that lent me to believe she really knew what she was talking about. So I did some investigating. Again, you can't just Google, but I found out that she had written Out of Africa, was an uncredited writer on Out of Africa. Wow. um, And had written Terror Train with Jamie Lee Curtis, which even was bigger news for me. And uh, like she was a very well-respected screenwriter and was teaching screenwriting like at columbia or something and over the years she became a mentor for me like we stayed in touch for probably 10 years yeah and i'm still friends with her on facebook so you you and she met her down there i didn't meet her i've never met her oh, we just okay. had this internet relationship um she's long retired now she'd be i'm sure she's in her 70s but right away she said yeah that's me like when i said hey you did this didn't you you wrote out of africa uh, for redford Yes, I did. And um, and so she said, I will help you. You ask me questions, I'll answer. But never ask me to read one of your scripts. Which was <laughs> something I didn't understand until later. Like right. so many people so, want you to read their scripts. Right, and it right. is bad. Like it's just a really bad thing to do. To read a script takes a couple hours out of your life. And most of them are as boring as dishwater. So how do you... How do you then get your script read? Like you must, that would breed the, the fear in me. I, it surely like. It did. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I didn't have, so I wasn't this naturally confident guy, right? Like I had to put on an act. If I wanted to come off as confident, it was an act. And I would do that sometimes. I did it when I went to LA. Somebody told me about this acting class, but to get into the senior acting class and that's the only one you want to be in, then you need to just go in and demand it. But I didn't have a tape. I had no resume, nothing. But I just went in and said, I need to be in the senior one. I'm not signing up. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. I walked in the first day of class, watched the first scene that went up and went, oh, fuck. I'm in trouble. These guys are pros. 100 people in the class, in a theater. And the two people down there, and Jeff Tambor was the instructor. Brilliant guy. Just a brilliant guy. He tore them both a new asshole for the terrible work they had just put up. And I was just like, I thought that was great. Wow. Oh my God, yeah, that was terror. Yeah. And I stuck it out for a couple of years. And, and did you have moments like that where you got a strip torn off here? Were you. Um, not really. I actually, Tambor uh, 
gave me some of my magic moments in my life. Like that you, when you think of good things happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what? Uh, we did a, I did a scene. My first real scene was Rain Man. And I did it with this, this beautiful girl. Like I had been putting off doing scenes because I, I didn't, I said right from the beginning, I want to be a writer director. I don't want to be an actor. Well, you got to do the acting thing, you know, to, to get an appreciation for it. So there was a lot of pressure. You had to put scenes up with regularity and there would be five or six scenes a night would go up and you went two times a week. And every week I'd go terrified that he would say, oh, you haven't put a scene up, you better. And they followed, like they, you would get called on it. And I hadn't been called yet, but I knew it was coming. And a woman approached me from the class. She was called Cara Cavanaugh. We're still friends to this day, just in this stunningly beautiful Italian model. Like she was on some of the billboards in Hollywood. There was famous people in the class, people you walk in and you know them from sitcoms and stuff. That was what I faced when I went. She asked me to do scene from Rain Man, where the scene is uh, the Tom Cruise scene. I can't remember who the girl is. They're, they're making out and Charlie Raymond, Raymond, I guess he's comes in. Yeah. And and like cuz he wants a book to read or something like that. I can't remember. And is interfering in this lovemaking that is supposed to happen. And uh so she asked me to do this scene with her and we got this other guy agreed. I knew you had to. You couldn't say no because I had put off doing a scene for a long time. And the one of the top guys in the class uh was John Mariano. He was just considered a very seasoned actor a really good good guy and he agreed to to be Raymond and we we practiced hard and did these you know we'd go out into public and pretend to be the three people this stuff that I would normally never but I would just say okay I'm doing this and so afraid one time we went to this cafe and we were playing the parts and John is pretending to be this autistic man and he kept and he just kept saying, Of course there's Jennifer Aniston looking at you. And and I was just like playing my part. Shut up, Jennifer Aniston's not here. Yeah, she's looking right at you. Yeah, she and then fuck if Jennifer Aniston wasn't standing there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, anyway, so we put this scene up. We finally put it up and it went well. Like So when you say put it up, you, you recorded it and then no, no, watch no. It, you're you, on stage. You go on the stage and you set up it's in front a, of it's all a these theater. people. Yes. Wow. Oh god, I can remember the terror. I haven't felt terror like that before or since. Mm -hmm. And and you create, you know, there was all these movable props and stuff. You have sofas and beds and stuff like that. And you get other people to help you with lights and stuff and you try to do a good job of it. And so the scene started out without with me and Cara making out and then, like you're actually kissing oh yeah it sounds no, like we a stupid thing to say no, no, but you're we actually were in the bed and then she was like take my top off take my top off. that's how these people behave we never did that in practice you know and i was like <laughs> oh shit and i was just shaking and anyway she felt she needed to do that to, that was her notes you got notes on how to be a better actor anyway we went through the scene i thought it went pretty good and she storms out after a while and, and then it's just me and Raymond sitting on the bed. It ended scene. And then there was clapping. And Jeff, Jeff was this great guy. Oh man, I liked him. 
He's got this serious look on his face. He's rubbing his chin. He's looking around. He's looking back at everybody else. Then he gets out of the chair and he walks around behind me. And then I just, I was sitting there thinking, oh, fuck, here it comes. Like I just, my blood was ice. You know, you just want to do well for him so badly. And I felt his hands go on the back of my shoulder. (laughs) And he said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a star. <laughs> so that's one of my best moments. I was, uh, you know, and the crowd went nuts. And... That would be a pretty big It was. Yeah, I, it was I, do, I do say, I, I think acting, being on stage, even like being in the film, film where you've got all these people watching you, I think it would be one of the most vulnerable p- positions to oh, be in. No doubt I, I feel like the, I feel like we underappreciate good acting we take it for granted because they're just up on the screen and you look and and they sort of they're so good they make you feel comfortable watching absolutely and i always laugh when i hear because what you just said is nail on the head tom cruise is one of the greatest screen actors who ever lived and nobody knows it because he's so good right he is so good and when you talked about being vulnerable there's a guy who's willing to make a fool of himself in almost every role. Oh, he does the MI5. He's a super cool guy. But he will always, he's always willing to make a fool of himself. Mm-hmm. And that's a sign of a good actor. So is it your ability to just let go of, I don't want to use the word ego. I'm sure a lot of them have like... Oh, they have tremendous egos. Ego. But when that but, camera starts, you you certainly got to surrender. So surrender is yeah. a great word. Yeah. yeah. So you basically you're all in. And I, I feel like if you're not all in, it's easy to see through it. Yeah, you can see the people who aren't, of course. If you talk to Anthony Hopkins, and I had the pleasure one time of doing that, he'll tell you, hit your mark, say your line, and go home. But he had such a natural way about him. I, th- I think he was one of these guys like, what's running 33 minutes for a 10K? Just train a couple of times and go do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people have to work very hard. So I think it's different for some than others. Uh, but it, ultimately, you do have to surrender. You can't just remember your lines. Yeah. I, I don't think... I couldn't anyway. I think I would have come off quite wooden. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by B78 Coaching. B78 delivers training programs for triathletes, runners, and cyclists. Programs are designed specifically for each individual. The B78 team of coaches has over 50 years of combined competition and coaching experience. To learn more, visit b78.is. That's b78.is. But I never wanted to be an actor. I never wanted to be in front of the screen. But doing that work made me a much better writer. I bet. Yeah, I I really appreciate that and eventually I ended up doing a little bit of directing Mm -hmm. and I was very good at that that was something that I really took to so what what was it about the experience of being in the actor's shoes that made you a better screenwriter well it's seeing that vulnerability for sure and then appreciating what they're going through when you're trying to create something is uh it's really valuable Mm -hmm. yeah so if you're Who's your who's your all time favorite actor? Can you pick one person? Is that too hard? Yeah, I my all time favorite actor. I don't. Yeah, I, I it would be really tough. I, there there's people that are are just so good that you 
you don't people don't really appreciate Brad Pitt's a great actor. Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp is a great actor. Maybe yeah. Depp, he is a great actor. Yeah. And there's lots of roles you'll watch him you can't hardly watch. Mm -hmm. You just you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's it's not working for you. You can do that, but he's a good actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, funny you bring up Brad Pitt because I think a lot of us would put him in the box of just kind of pretty. Yeah, and, but he's you know, he worked but he's really hard. Totally, and actually, some of his some of my favorite movies with him him in them are are kind of offbeat, like yeah. Snatch. Did you ever see oh. Snatch? I'm like, telling great, you, the guy's great a movie. great actor. Twelve yeah. Monkeys. I haven't seen Twelve Monkeys. Oh my good. god! Yeah, it's like you know he can be somebody different, right? Mm -hmm. He can be somebody different. Yes, very different. And uh, so, yeah, I would. When Michael Moriarty before he went insane and he died sort of mentally ill but he he was a wonderful actor when he was a young so man what was he in i'm gapping. well he was in law and order wasn't that or la no law and order he was the lawyer in law and order that's oh, what he okay. sort of remembered for mm -hmm. but he did all these kind of small movies in the 70s that he was really really good mm -hmm. really good yeah yeah um oh god now her name's escaping me the woman in misery oh uh Is she called kate or no i can't even think of her name Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. She might be my favorite. Yeah. Maybe Kathy yeah. Bates is, to me, has been one of the most versatile yeah. actors I've seen out there. I would love to work with her. Was, is, it, does Misery, uh, I mean, that fits kind of into the genre. Of That's my like genre. Anything. Like, yeah. you know, people say, oh, you're into horror. I like horror, but that to me is like one of the great movies Rob Reiner directed it. Mm -hmm. based on a king novel mm -hmm. i mean that's talent and then you have bates in there and James that was one Khan. of one of the freakiest movies i've it's, ever watched it is oh just gives a, me the creeps that's a great one yeah, yeah 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 um so you're you're in la you plan to go for six months you end up staying for six years yeah. so you must have been heavily in the scene like what was that like being you know uh, acting and script writing aside what was the scene like down there yeah pretty lonely Right? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so, you know, you live in a little apartment somewhere. I ended up actually sharing an apartment with Kara, the girl that I did the scene with. We were never uh, never partners or a couple, but we were just two people trying to get through. And what you're, you're surrounded by all of these people who want the same thing you do, who are desperate to make it in one of the toughest industries out there. And they're working really hard on all levels to make it trying to meet people so you're going out you're going to the parties and the bars and you're trying to meet people and you're trying to get your product whether it's you or your writing out there and it's hard it was really really hard hmm. so i mean what i did was i just kept writing i wrote so much i would sometimes have days where i was writing 12 all the way up to 18 hours in a day i would be at my computer writing screenplays. And are, are these just ideas that pop into your head? Yeah, you, I, you get more ideas than you can ever write, of course, like I did at the time, less now. But um, yeah, I would, I would be journaling, I'd be writing screenplays, I'd be writing outlines, I'd be writing pitches to, you know, you, you, hopefully you got pitches where you went in and told a story to somebody who had the power to move it up the line or even maybe even green light it. Mm-hmm. Um, which was tougher because, I mean, to greenlight a movie, there was maybe a dozen people in the town who could do that. Right. You know, right. So you, you would inevitably be pitching to somebody who could move you up the line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had some interesting stories there for sure, you know, to pitching stories. Um, 
and I hit some lows. I hit some real lows. I, I remember one time I was out of money and I had decided that I was going to throw in the towel. This was it. I had told Carl I was going to go back to Victoria and uh, loaded up the car. I remember it was a Monday and I didn't have any toothpaste. I didn't have any money to buy any. So I went to the bank because I knew I had a few bucks left in the bank with my bank card, but I only had $7 in my bank account. So I couldn't take it out because it had to be 20. I just wanted to buy a tube of toothpaste, you know, to drive home. But that morning I had a pitch meeting. So I was going to go to the pitch meeting Tuesday morning. It was at a company called New Image Films. This is where you're pitching to them. I'm pitching to them. And the guy was Avi Lerner, who, as I just mentioned, was maybe one of 12 people who could actually greenlight a movie. Mm -hmm. He owned the company. And uh, this guy that I was working with, Richard Serafian, and I had met him at a party. And I did the aggressive thing. like, And this was just like on Saturday. I said, Avi, what are you guys making these days? What are you looking for? And he, he said, I want the prison movie. It was this Israeli guy, big 6'3" you know, rugged looking fellow. And I want a prison movie, uh, a prison movie, prison movie with some dope involved. <laughs> bring me that. And I said, well, when can I bring that to? I actually happen to have one. I lied. I didn't have one. <laughs> so he said, Tuesday morning, set it up. So we set up this meeting and all weekend, Richard and I brainstormed this movie idea. And we called it the devil's kiss. And it was about uh, this prison that was manufacturing uh, this crazy drug in the basement, experimenting with on prisoners with it. And the idea was to, it would be very cheap. They would send it out to the, to the poorer districts of town. And with everybody doing it, they would go crazy, kill each other. The property values would go down. They would, basically, it was about gentrification. They'd buy up the property and then fix it up and make millions that was the whole idea and you came up with that yeah yeah so we came up with it over the weekend and uh and it involved these two brothers and stuff in it and uh and we went to Avi's office I remember so I have my car packed with my stuff ready to go I've been to a hundred pitch meetings before not very often with somebody as high level as Avi right and uh so we walk into his office and his office was really something to behold it was probably 40 feet long. So this room that we're sitting in is 20 some. Yeah. So double it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He's on Sunset Boulevard and the, his, the back of the is like the Sunset Boulevard side is all glass. And he's sitting behind this massive desk back at the window. And at this wall, like the opposite wall, 40 feet away was a sofa with no legs. <laughs> So he invites us to sit down, doesn't get out of his chair, sit down. <laughs> we had heard that he had been like running guns in Africa or something before going into legitimate business, you know. I don't know if that was true or not, I'm probably slandering. He was a very nice man, I liked him. Um, so Richard and I sat down in this sofa and then the sofa was like really soft. So like you, our knees were <laughs> and we sat down, tell me your story. So he sits there and I, Richard was kind of a, a quiet guy. He had been in the movie. His parents were, you know, sort of icons in the film industry. And 
His brother is very, very successful. Richard was the fuck-up middle brother, but who was the genius. Like, he was this creative genius. So the idea was I was going to write the script and he would direct it. We came as a team. And uh, so he asked to tell the story. So it's, it's up to me. It falls on me to tell this story. So I start telling the story. And I bet you for 25 minutes, I just walked through the story. And he, at one point, he interrupted me and said, are we talking twin brothers? Because <laughs> there were these brothers. And I was like, yes, they're twins. Okay. And I carried on to the end. And then we got to the end. He didn't say anything. And then he he kind of looks, turns, looks out the window. Then he reaches down, opens up a drawer in his desk, pulls out a yellow pad. And he says, next year I will make 12 movies. This will be one of them. And he writes out, how much do you need to write it? No. Yeah. And that's where Richard's experience came in and said, 10 grand, five each, and we'll, we'll have it for you in three weeks. He was speaking for me because I would have three weeks to write it. He said, pick your checks up on the way out. So I got a check for five grand on the way out the door. And that had never, anything like that had ever happened to me. That is it. So I called up Carr and said, yeah, I'm not going. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And then I had to go to the bank with the check. And I was terrified that they were going to put a hold on it. I had $7 in the bank account. So I went to the bank. Turns out the guy behind the counter was an aspiring actor. And when I handed him the new image, he's like, new image? Oh, that's how we learned and I said, yeah. And he said, well, what did you sell? Did you sell something? Because they know, like everybody in town knows. I said, yeah, we just sold an idea. I'm going to write a script. Guy hands me his headshot. Well, if you need actors. No way. Me. Yeah. Oh, and my God. And he, of course, clears the check. And I walk yeah. out and go grocery shopping. That is just. Great. That is. It was the be- one of the best days of my life. Then that night, to celebrate, I went down to my regular watering hole, the Coach and Horses. And I got there early and I brought my book with me because I was going to start sketching out this movie, like really start laying out the scene. So I got there early and I knew the bar would be empty and it wasn't empty. There was one guy sitting in the bar and where is he sitting? Where I sit. Yeah. Like I had, like I was, I lived in this bar. I had my seat. Well, it turns out it's Quentin Tarantino. No way. And he was really one of the reasons why I went to Hollywood. I was working in this cubicle, you know, designing databases. And my buddy Rob sends me a tape, a VHS tape of Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. So you've got to see this movie. So I watched it while working, headphones on a little TV. I was like, wow, that is amazing. I need to do this. So it was really cool because I sold this idea. And there's Quentin. I sat down beside him. We start talking and I got to tell him, like, you're the reason I came here. And today I sold my first script. Like, I haven't written it yet, but I told him the whole thing. And he gave me his number because I said, man, I'd love to, like, for you to do a cameo. He said, I'd love to. So he told me he would do it and he gave me his number. And he said, if you ever, and we, we closed that place down. We closed that place down. He was drinking Greyhounds. I was drinking beer. And when the the lights came up, April, the bartender was like, hey, I love you guys, but you got to get the fuck out of here. And we stumbled out of the bar. He had been uh, editing Jackie Brown just across the street from the bar in the editing studio there. That is just... That was a great... Talk was, about going from yeah. probably your lowest low. Oh, to You're like, I'm out of here. High, yeah. To your highest high. And of course, that movie went bad. You know, mm-hmm. it went bad. But not before I made close to 15 grand. Like, yeah. you know, I delivered a, a version of the script, which they liked. But then, you know, there was politics involved and I, yeah. I lost it. I that is just the most remarkable day 
Yeah, that was a life. big day. That was that was definitely a big day. <laughs> yeah. That was a big day. It must be one of those industries that you have to get, I don't want to say good at accepting rejection, but you just... Oh, you do. I mean, it, No, it no, just... you can say that. Mm-hmm. You have to be good at... Acting's even worse. Mm-hmm. Screenwriting, like, you don't... Well, I mean, you can write a couple of scripts and then just paper the town with them and get lots of rejection. So, yeah, it's like acting in a way. But at least you're not putting your face there. But it's your writing, you know? Whenever I give some... When I write something for some, whether it's Triathlete Magazine Canada or some bit of fiction for somebody else, a poem for a girlfriend, you know, I, I want to hear feedback. Mm-hmm. And I'm nervous until I do to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and this house you're in is, was bought for by screenwriting. Uh, not coaching. We both know that that's not an industry to make money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I still, you know, I've had, I've had praise for my writing from s- some people who wrote checks to back it up. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's always said. That's what that was the cliche in the writing. It ain't a compliment until there's a check with it. Because mm-hmm. people will tell you, oh, you're great. You're well, we're going to go in a different direction. You know, that's what you hear. Yeah. Yeah. But I had some wonderful moments, lots of wonderful moments. And, and as far as my writing went, I never like I never had anyone say, dude, you've picked the wrong, you know, you're no good at this. Mm-hmm. Can't sing or dance. You should try something different. You know, like I never got that. Yeah. So I've always been quite fortunate, you know, with writing. But like the one thing I can tell you, like everything else. I'm thinking about this. I'm choosing my like the harder you work, the better you get at it. Mm-hmm. And there's certain things you can do. To make yourself a better writer. If you want to be a writer, you need to be reading every day. You want to be a screenwriter, you better be watching every day. Mm-hmm. And writers write. Writers write and then they rewrite. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people who, you know, you go on Twitter and I'm a writer. Yeah, what have you written? Nothing. You got It doesn't matter if anyone read it. Nobody bought a Van Gogh painting except his brother, right? So, like, you don't have to be selling your stuff to be a writer. Mm-hmm. But you better be writing. Yeah. And reading good writing, that that's one of the things that helped me, I think, a lot, was I always have a book on the go. Yeah. And then you just, you got to, like, let the censor and you go. Yeah. You've got to let the censor and you go and you just write. And today we're moving into a really dangerous time for the arts. Really dangerous. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by Renew Enhanced Tea. Renew has created the world's first ready-to-drink tea-based functional beverage, engineered using the science of sleep to promote daytime recovery and nighttime rejuvenation. Renew Enhanced Tea is formulated to help you get back to your best by reducing physical and mental stress, restoring and revitalizing your brain and body. Renew Enhanced Tea is light, refreshing, contains only 50 calories and tastes amazing. To learn more, visit RenewEnhancedTea.com. That's R-E-N-U EnhancedTea.com. Yeah, well, as I was saying, the, the arts are in real trouble right now because um, there's a real movement afoot to be offended. Like everybody is just so ready to be offended that it's very difficult now to tell any kind of a story without people getting just bent right out of shape. You've got these concepts of cultural appropriation and 
And, uh, you know, there's new words now every third day that we're not allowed to say. And that is what that's creating is a lot of artists now who are like being really careful about what they write and, and nothing great will ever come out of that. Mm -hmm. Never, never. I, I raise my daughter, uh, that there's no such thing as a bad word. There's not a single bad word out there. There's only bad intention. Mm -hmm. And so she can say whatever she wants around me and chooses not to, for the most part. In fact, gives me hell because I'm saying things that I probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't want her to think that there's, you know, that there's bad language. Yeah. Yeah. It's always mm -hmm. the context that it's in. It's the context and the intention. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What is the you, person intent? You feel like it's like a, I feel like that stuff's like a pendulum sometimes. So it swings one way and then it yeah. swings well, back. It's swinging the bad way some, now. And uh, somewhere there's a correction. Yeah. Well, yeah. the correction is like, you see things like Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. which is a correction to that a lot of people are just so upset at being told how they can think and what they can do and mm -hmm. and sometimes logic seems to to go out the window yeah at all, yeah so. and i would think uh a space like the arts is a place where you need the freedom to explore all kinds of crazy stuff absolutely yeah. the things that are going on inside of you sometimes aren't mm -hmm. very nice and you want to want to get them out there and you know i'll create characters who are meant to be evil mm -hmm. right i had i had the i remember these sort of trailer trash characters that were in a, a film i did and uh one of them called somebody else retarded and i was told i had to change that because it was offensive i was like but she's supposed to be offensive she's uneducated and she's a racist and she's like this horrible person and so she calls somebody retarded. Doesn't that like show that she's a horrible? Like, and no, we might offend people. I was, I had to change. But that was in her character. That was the character of the person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I don't know. I don't think it's yeah. tricky at all. That's yeah. the thing. It's You're... not tricky. Shut up. Fuck off. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's not tricky at all. Yeah, yeah. It, to me, that's not tricky at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's sad. It's uh, it's. it's it's not good for our, but like you say, it's a pendulum swing and hopefully it swings back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, uh, is your fascination with the horror genre? I was saying to you when I first came in, I can't even watch them because at 45 years old, I'll, I'm home alone after watching yeah. a horror movie and I'm terrified. What do you like about them? I don't know. It's probably about the same thing as a roller coaster, right? Like that thrill, the sense of danger without you actually being in danger. Mm-hmm. It elicits a strong emotion. Now, a lot of it has to do with with the memory of youth, right? Like, so I grew up watching the Hammer horror films of Frankenstein and Dracula and all those. My friend Jeff, Sleepovers, was lots of fun. And those were good memories. And even as a teenager, then we went to see Halloween and Friday the 13th. We'd never seen anything like that. And those scared the bejesus out of us. It really did. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't scare a teenager today. They wouldn't hold up. But they did to us. And it was just fun. So there's that sense of memory. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me what my favorite movies are, they're not going to be horror movies. Okay. What are they? Well, like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now. Uh, Alien was, was one of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. why it was just a great movie yeah i mean beautifully done 
looked great Ridley Scott at his best and it was scary as hell but that's not what I mean that was part of they effectively came up with a horrifying scenario mm-hmm. but it was uh, it was just the, the rich language the you know it was truckers in outer space with Jason on their that's what it was right right you know it was yeah. these working class guys just trying to get back to earth and mm-hmm. with their payload so they could all get paid and go home but they picked up a hitchhiker. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was just this, why do you like art? I don't know. The Godfather is brilliant. It's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Do you know a movie that's been quoted as often as that? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe Napoleon yeah. Dynamite or something. Right. Ace Ventura. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that... I mean, those are, a good movie is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Sleepless in Seattle is a great movie. I've never seen Sleepless it's in Seattle. It's a great movie. I it's feel like I should watch that at Christmas. Is that a, yeah, it's a good Christmas. Sort of a good yeah, Christmas. It's movie. a good Christmas movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are your favorite? If you get top five horror movies that everybody should see. Well, Alien, as I said, so that would certainly be one of them. And and contextually, seeing things like Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth, if you can sort of think, okay, it's nineteen seventy seven, nineteen seventy eight. They're fun to watch from an education point of view. You should know those movies. Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho, same thing. Um, but straight up horror that will scare you. Misery. Yeah. That's a great one. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. I could go over and look at my wall over there. and I'm going to get some pictures of your wall. Yeah, you're welcome to. <laughs> Hellraiser. Hellraiser was brilliant. Was it? Really low budget, lots of sort of mistakes and flaws in it. But the idea that the monster, everybody thinks of the pinhead guy, right? In Hellraiser as being the monster in the movie. But he wasn't the monster in the movie. And what was kind of fun about that was the monster were the people. And he was their reward. So if you were monstrous, your reward was this was pinhead who would drag you to hell see i haven't even seen that movie because i see the like the cover with that guy with the pinheads and i'm like yeah won't love that one. Oh yeah you got a you got a statue that's yeah. great <laughs> that's from the mind of clive barker and he's he's a definitely one of the geniuses in our genre yeah for sure yeah so just uh let's carry on here so you're in LA, you get the little break, but you don't stay there. You last six years, and then last you're six years, started to miss my family. Started doing a little bit of drugs. Was drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, made a lot of money, spent a lot of money. Um, really, I just got very lonely. Mm-hmm. You, you having a relationship in that town is. I met some wonderful people, some really nice women that I dated for a while. But everybody's there for work, mm-hmm. and ultimately. You almost feel like you're like holding on to each other through the night just to get through the fucking night. And then you get up in the morning, you do it all over again. Mm -hmm. But you can't put down roots or anchors anywhere. You've got to be free to move. You've got to be free to get up and go. And and if a better offer comes along, you've got to be free to take it. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to help you a little more. Yeah. So it's a, I don't want to say cutthroat, but in a way it's kind of. Well, it's a survival place, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like. I don't have memories of kind of like being betrayed or anything like that. Way worse in the triathlon world. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, I'm yeah. not even kidding. Yeah. The betrayal that you get in the triathlon world is far more profound than anything I ever... 
suffered in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Hollywood really the one if there was one thing that I got out of Hollywood that really surprised me, it's about talent. Mm-hmm. And who you know matters a lot less than how good are you. Really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would have. That was something I I tuned into and I realized and that's what gave me hope. Hey, I don't need to have a famous last name. I don't need to know all these people. What I need to do is write a good story and if I do it'll sell. Mm-hmm. They're desperate for good stories. Yeah. So you hear things like 33,000 screenplays a year get registered with the guild and about 700 movies get made. And that's a terrible statistic. But I I read a lot of scripts and most of them are shit. Mhm. And I thought, well, I can. I don't write shit. I'll write good stuff. Mm-hmm. Still tough. You're still uphill battle. But it, it, the more I realized that it really was in my hands. Mm-hmm. That if I worked hard, didn't just write well, but then got out and, and sold the stuff and shook hands and tried hard to get your stuff out, mm-hmm. you could do it. And if I had had you know a couple of different path choices, I could have ended up staying there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really a coin flip. I just, I miss my parents. They yeah. were still alive. They still are. Yeah. And I wanted to be near them. Yeah. Yeah. So you came back up here. Yeah. And through the time in LA, were you still active or were you just focused on? I joined Crunch Gym on Sunset Boulevard. Crunch Gym. Yeah. Was it like a fitness fad? Or... Yeah. No, yeah. no. It was like a boxing centric and I had done yeah. a little fighting when I was younger and I liked that. Cool. Um, big gym, you know, big weight room and lots of machines. It was a monstrous place and really a nice facility. Mm -hmm. So I joined there and that was a good thing. I used to like going there. That was really my only fitness that I was doing. Endurance sport was tough, right? Because there's not the trail system that, you know, I, near the end, I dusted off a bike and started riding a little bit up on Mulholland, but Mm -hmm. the roads are so bad and people drive so crazy Mm -hmm. up there that it was just kind of, I just never felt safe. Yeah. 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 So you got back up here and right back into triathlon. Yeah. I actually got back into triathlon before I left. Like, so I watched Simon win like everybody. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I remember, I shouldn't say this, but this girl and I were doing Coke. Yeah. And the Olympics (laughs) were on. Okay. And we were in my room. I had this beautiful, I was living in this beautiful place. And it was just a surreal scene and the triathlon came on yeah and i remember telling her i used to do that and she was from houston this girl was from houston she was a really nice lady and uh i can't do the accent but we watched her for and goddamn if simon didn't win while we were watching <laughs> so it was yeah. the olympics right and uh and i was just enthralled like in telling her about you know how i'd done that one and 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 I just remember her saying, well, honey, I think you all need to do that again. <laughs> Texas accent. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I just, then, I don't know, like the bug got in my, I started thinking, I thought, well, I wonder what's going on in the triathlon world. So that by then you could Google. Mm-hmm. And there was an Ironman like a week or two later in Camp Pendleton. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Remember that one. What year was that? Probably 2000. Yeah. Okay. Because it was just after the Olympics. So it would have been 2000. Yeah. yeah. So I decided to just go and watch. Mm-hmm. And I went down there, drove down, just by myself, parked, and all day watched the race going on, looked at the new bikes that had, you know, happened over the last like 10 years. 
met Brian Rhodes down there. We yeah. became friends to this day, sort of, you know, as close as anyone could be to Brian Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Cam Brown, who's a really nice guy, ended up staying at my house for a week. He needed a place to crash in LA for a week. And yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then I just slowly decided I wanted to do the sport again. And I probably, that was one of the factors too that sent me back to LA, you know, cause then I stayed in LA for like another year mm-hmm. and I was loaded up and ready to go when 9-11 happened. Right. So I had to stay right. an extra couple of days at a friend's house and we just watched that unfold. Yeah. Yeah. That's then, one of those moments everybody remembers. Yeah. They, a couple of were. days later, like on the yeah. Wednesday, I got in my minivan loaded up with whatever I could fit and headed yeah. back to Vic. Yeah. yeah. I've been back here ever since. Sort of, yeah. I went back to LA a couple of times since then. I got called in. I got uh, an opportunity to direct a super low-budget movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years ago, I did that. So that was like, I don't know, maybe 12, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's about the last thing I really did in the film industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any desire to go back or are you pretty... I don't have a desire to go back to LA, but I do like writing movies and I do have that desire to keep doing. I still do it. Mm-hmm. I just don't do anything with it. And I'm so busy with triathlon now that uh, that that's what I, you know, that's what I do. So get promoting myself out there is that's really tough. Yeah. Um, this has been great. I uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been so cool to learn about your uh, time in in LA and how you go from budding triathlete to yeah to successful screenwriter <laughs> do you still have just one last question do you yeah. still have your original you said you wrote four you had four yeah. or something do you still have those i have every word i ever wrote I except bet. for a journal one time i left a journal in a pub yeah and i lost it and i still have nightmares about that but uh, uh, yeah sure i have those scripts yeah, yeah. very yeah. cool yeah. yeah yeah they wouldn't i guys for uh, shits and giggles i should pull one out and read it now that those were all written in the 90s and mm-hmm. you know like when people didn't have cell phones and stuff like so you know such a different context for writing a script right cell phones killed horror like the, it's the same now every cell phone oh i don't get any reception here is it like everybody does that or else right you know, right you, you yeah gotta, you gotta deal with the cell phone in every single movie and it's always like you break them or they run out of power yeah you got to take them out of the yeah out of the equation yeah it was a better world yeah we're younger yeah (laughs) grumpy old man yeah no that's good buddy thank you hey my pleasure anytime and uh maybe we'll get you on again we'll uh hear about the party scene in la there was a party scene yeah hey thanks for tuning in to the habit podcast make sure you check us out on instagram at the habit podcast where you'll find pictures of our guests and teasers about upcoming episodes until next time Thanks for listening.